0: super glad you guys are here. Thanks for coming out. You're here on a super special morning for a couple of different reasons. But the big one is that I'm about to do something that I have never done in about 2,000 different messages. I've been doing this pastor thing uh, for almost uh, two decades now, probably 2,000-ish messages total. And this is the first time that I've ever shared the stage with my wife, which I am really excited about. And yeah, give her a hand, seriously. (laughs) I'll scoot over and pretend like we like each other. Um, I'm also a bit terrified, you guys, because I'm close enough that she can smack me if I say something stupid, right? This is the first time that's happened. Yeah, and who am I kidding if I say something stupid? I mean, when I say something stupid, whack, you know? So uh, we put a cap on the number of times she can reach over and smack me this morning. I'll tell you when we get to that limit, okay? You'll know right off the bat. Um, Yeah, so I'm getting to share, share the stage with my wife, Amber. You guys normally see her leading worship up here, but she's come this morning because we are in the middle of our Ideal Family series, and we're asking the question, how do I deal with my real family? And we're talking about the tension that every single one of us experience, between the fact that we wish we had this ideal relationship, whether it's with our parents or our children or you know our husband and wife, our boyfriend, girlfriend, uh, siblings, whatever it is, there's this tension between the ideal relationship that we wish we had and the very real relationship that we have to deal with on a daily basis. Now, this is week three of this particular series, but if it's your first time here, don't worry. You've come on a very, very good morning. You're going to be able to jump right in and not feel lost at all. Last week we spoke to single people. So those of you guys that are looking for love, you're hoping that one day you begin a relationship that leads to marriage and eventually goes the distance. If you didn't get to uh, get a chance to catch that message, then go online, you can go to our church website and catch out uh, catch up on the podcast. It's connectcalgary.ca. We give you single people a lot of very practical tips on what it takes to be the right kind of person who can have a marriage that will eventually go the distance. Now this morning, we're going to talk to you married folks, all right? Those of you guys who are in long-term committed relationships, if you're single or if you're in a long-term but not committed relationship, I don't know, there are all sorts of different ways of living your life, we want to invite you guys to track with us anyway, okay? Don't check out and say, well, this is for married people and I'm single because one day you probably hope that you're going to be married. And so the things that we're going to talk about, I think, will help you as you prepare for that future relationship. Now, I want to point out a couple of things before we dive into this, okay? Number one, Amber and I are going to be sharing some things with you, and I want to say up front, we are not positioning ourselves as experts on any of this stuff. Okay, If you're looking for an expert, you need to go hire a counselor. I, I know a few. There are some in this church, and so I would love to you know connect you with them. We're going to be sharing with you some principles that, in truth, we don't do perfectly ourselves. We've been married for just about 13 years now, and we are still learning and growing and figuring out what it means to have a more ideal relationship on a daily basis. So as we share these things with you, I don't want you to sit in your seat and think, oh, they have such a perfect relationship. We've been Sharing with you for a couple of weeks that we have a very real relationship and we deal with the exact same struggles that you do. Okay, one more caveat and then we're gonna dive in, all right? The last thing is this you're not gonna leave here this morning with six steps to an easy marriage. You're not gonna leave here with six steps to an easy marriage. Do you know why? Because they don't exist. If there were six steps to an easy marriage, you would have figured them out a long time ago, right? And so I'm instead, rather than giving you a plan that you can walk through step one, two, three, four, five, we're gonna dive into a particular passage of the scripture. And in this passage, we're gonna pull out some principles. And there'll be about five or six of them in total. We're gonna trade off and and speak to each one. And what I want you to do is to listen and see if any of them pique your curiosity. Or if any of them jump out at you and you're like, oh man, if there's anything that our marriage needs to work on, it's this one. So don't try to do all six right away. You know, wives don't go home with a list and say, okay, we've got to start this one and then this one and then this one. That's not how it works. Instead, find one or two of them that you believe would be very beneficial to strengthen and to shore up in your own marriage and then get to work on that. And as that gets healthier, as that area of your relationship gets stronger, then you can move on to something else. Sound good? Okay. I'm hoping you guys are tracking with me. We're going to dive right in. Okay. We're going to go straight to this passage of scripture. It's 1 Corinthians chapter number 13. This is often called the love passage of the Bible. More than any other scripture, people ask me to read this at their weddings. You know, they say, hey, Dan, when you perform our ceremony, would you read 1 Corinthians 13? It's so beautiful. And it so perfectly describes our love. You know, It, it is a very poetic and idyllic sort of passage. So this passage is dealing with the subject of love. Technically, It's talking about love inside of church relationships, but certainly it applies to family relationships, to romantic relationships as well. So we're going to dive in. We're going to start reading towards the end of the passage, 1 Corinthians chapter number 13, and we'll start reading in verse number seven. I want you to listen to these words. The Bible says, love always protects. It always trusts. It always hopes. It always perseveres. Love never fails. Hey, how many of you guys would love to have a marriage like that? A love that trusts and protects and always does. A love that will never, ever fail. When I read those words, though, I'm a bit skeptical, to be honest with you. Even as a pastor, I look at this and I'm like, always and never. That sets the bar incredibly high, doesn't it? And as I told you a couple of weeks ago, I don't always And sometimes I never, like, it's really difficult for me to be consistent. And yet when I read this passage, it says, love always does these things. Love always does those things. It never does these things. When I'm doing marriage counseling with couples, I'll often encourage them, look, just eliminate always and never from your vocabulary. And (laughs) fat. And fat. We don't say fat in our relationship because I have a very fragile ego. Um, Always, it's true, you guys always and never. I tell couples all the time, don't say always and never because it's always never true, right? You're like, you never do the dishes. Yes, he does the dishes sometimes. He may not do them a lot, but he does do them sometimes. And so when you say always and never, immediately he's thinking of all the times that he did, or she's thinking about all the times that she actually said. And so I encourage people not to say always and never. And yet right off the bat in these verses, the Bible goes all in on always and never in your relationship, which can be pretty scary. Because when I look at this, I start thinking of all the exceptions, you know, to the always and never rule. Like I'm looking for the loopholes that'll allow me to get away with not being trusting in my relationship, that'll allow me to get away with not always being there for my wife and protecting or, you know, persevering or whatever the case may be. I'm thinking to myself, like, how am I supposed to always trust my spouse if my spouse isn't always trustworthy? Like, how can I do that? You might be thinking to yourself, how can I always speak kindness to my spouse when he don't deserve kindness all the time? You might be looking for those loopholes, those opportunities for you to kind of get around these very strong, bold, and obvious words, always and never. Now, here's the problem. When you and I think like that, when we start asking ourselves, like, well, what about them? And I'm supposed to do this, I know, but they never do this, and they always do that. When we start thinking through those sorts of lanes, we're engaging in, uh, we start to believe that marriage is a contract, okay? We start to view our relationship in terms of a contract With our spouse. And in a contract, essentially, it's an agreement between two people that define all of the expectations and boundaries and rights and responsibilities, and it dictates what happens when you don't keep up your end of the deal, doesn't it? A contract is an agreement that's essentially based on mutual distrust. And there are a lot of marriages that are based on mutual distrust. That I've got to define our relationship and my expectations so much to the point that if you don't keep up with your side of the bargain, then I know what I'm able to do in response, that justice will be served and I will be vindicated because you didn't do your part, buddy, and I'm trying to to hold up my end of all of this. We think about marriage as a contract between us and another person where they are responsible for keeping up their end of the bargain. And if they don't, then the contract is null and void, right? It doesn't matter. It's not enforceable. How, why would you stay inside of that kind of relationship? But I want you to understand that from a biblical perspective, Although from a legal perspective, your marriage is a legal contract. I get that. From a biblical perspective, though, marriage is not a contract. It's a covenant. And those two things are very, very different. You see, a contract is based on mutual distrust. A contract is based on performance. How well you measure up to all of my expectations of you. And it lays out what happens when you break the rules. But a covenant is completely different. It's based not on performance and not on conditions, but it's based on promise and it's based on commitment. You see, a covenant, when you're, or rather a contract, when you're operating with a contract mindset, whether this is in your marriage relationship, friendships, whatever it is, you're looking at the person sitting across from you and you're saying, I'll do X if you do Y. This is my job. This is your job. These are my responsibilities and rights, and these are yours. And if you keep yours, then I will keep mine. Contracts say, I'll do X if you do Y. But a covenant says, I'll do X no matter what. It doesn't matter whether you measure up. It doesn't matter whether you're keeping your end of the bargain that this is not a contract, this is a covenant. And it's not based on how well you perform, it's based on the promises that I made to you at the altar, that I would love you no matter what, till death do us part in sickness and in health and in nagging and in layoffs and all of that stuff, right? It is the agreement, the promise that I am going to stick by you at all times in all things. Marriage, you guys, if you've been married, you know this, it is not a 50-50 split. There's no 50-50 in marriage. There's no marriage that is an even split of responsibilities. There are going to be seasons and days in your relationship where you uh, or your spouse cannot carry their weight. They cannot keep up their end of the bargain. And if you're operating under a contract mindset, you are going to be perpetually disappointed with your spouse because they cannot measure up. If you come in with high expectations, And you say, you need to do this, and you need to do that, and you need to do this in order to make me happy. Do you realize that even if they do everything you're expecting them to do, your relationship is not gonna be good. And the reason for that is because when they do what's expected of them, you don't celebrate that. You just say, well, of course you did the dishes. Of course you took out the trash. Of course you put the kids to bed. That's what I expect you to do as the wife or the husband in this relationship. And so even if they're able to measure up to your expectations, you're still gonna be dissatisfied because we operate under contract thinking in our marriages instead of covenant marriages. There's a reason that 1 Corinthians chapter number 13, this passage that we're reading right now, if you go back two verses to uh, verse number five, the Bible says, love keeps no record of wrongs. Contracts keep a lot of records of wrongs and they call up the lawyer quick, say this, listen to everything that she's done wrong to me, but love keeps no record of of wrongs. And there's a reason that verse 7, the verse that we read this morning, says over and again that love always and love never. Those are strong words. And I don't know that I or Amber or you or anybody else is ever going to be able to fully measure up to them, but let's not throw away the idea that love can go the distance. Let's not give in to the contract mindset that says, hey, if you don't keep your end of the bargain, then I'm free to walk away. Let's operate with a covenant understanding of our relationship where I promise genuinely that I'm going to love and serve you despite whether you meet my expectations or not. Love always and love never. All right, Amber's going to talk to us a little bit about love protecting
1: Yeah, so our first always is love always protects. And this last week, Daniel and I went hiking in Kananaskis. And guys, it was so beautiful. And we were about halfway through the hike, and Daniel turned to me, and he said, okay, so it's springtime. We need to talk about bears. And I said, okay, what's our plan? And he said, if a bear comes into our path, I want you to immediately get behind me. And then facing the bear, I want you to slowly back away and then go run and grab help. And I was like, okay, I know I should have been terrified in this moment of having this conversation about bears interrupting our hike. But can I just say my first thought was, yeah, my man would wrestle a bear for me. (laughs) And I believe that he would. (laughs) I believe that he would, too. I really do. Love always protects. But I'm not just talking about the protection in a physical sense. No, I believe that in our marriage, we should protect our marriage with our words. Words really do matter, especially when we're talking to our spouses. Our words have the ability to cut the other down, make them feel five inches tall. Or our words have the ability to build that person up, make them feel like Superman or Wonder Woman. Hello. (laughs) (laughs) Our words are a powerful thing, and we should protect our marriage with our words. And we should use that through encouragement, through prayer, and by honoring our spouse. We should always breathe life into our spouses and encouragement and always communicate what what it is that we love about them. So there are a few phrases that I think we should add to our vocabulary, and especially if this is your area of struggle. And I'll be honest, encouragement is not something that I'm natural at. It's something that I work on. So there's a few phrases that if this is your struggle, definitely add this to your, your vocabulary when you're speaking to your spouse. It's, I believe in you. I'm proud of you. And you can do this. And you might think that your spouse doesn't need to hear that from you. They can call their mom, they can call their brother, and they can hear that from them. But I'm telling you, your opinion matters to them more than anyone else in the world. That might be unspoken, but it's true. Your words matter to your spouse. When we first got married, I really wanted to um, impress Daniel with my cooking skills, but I didn't know how to cook much more than spaghetti. So one night, I decided to make breakfast for dinner. Now, raise of hands, where are my breakfast for dinner, people? Yes. yes there are my yes. people right there. So Testify. I'm paid French toast, fried eggs, and bacon. Yeah. Like, our first year of marriage, guys, we gained, like, 20 pounds, Not even kidding, fat and happy, but we don't use the word fat, right? right? (laughs) So I began cooking, and I realized that while I was making the bacon, I had never made bacon before. And I remember thinking, bacon always comes out really salty, so while I'm frying this, I'm just going to add salt to it. And so I just laid it on thick, (laughs) And I got done cooking, and I served it up, put it on the table, served it to my brand-new husband, and I took a bite of that bacon, and I realized I had completely ruined it. But I waited for his reaction. And so he took his first bite, and then he looked at me, and he was like, thank you so much for making this. This all looks so the wonderful. Holy Spirit,
0: you guys. Holy Spirit in that moment. <laughs> was my like, my proudest so moment.
1: Wonderful. But he was like, Did the bacon come this salty? (laughs) So I told him what I had done. But what I love about his reaction is that he didn't expect the worst out of me. No, he expected that it was the butcher's fault at the grocery store for making his bacon salty. No, he expected the best. And he encouraged me even when it wasn't my best. When we keep a running list of people's wrongs and how they don't measure up to our standards, we are only tearing them down. We are never building them up. Daniel could have been really upset that I messed up his bacon. And he could have been like, you're never making me bacon again, woman. (laughs) But I never I never would have become a better cook. And he could have been really passive-aggressive about it. And he could have bought me cooking lessons. But then I would have always doubted his opinion every time I made him dinner. No, he encouraged me, and he gave me room to figure it out on my own. Our words to our spouse and our encouragement matters. Secondly, we need to pray for our spouses. Pray for them on a daily basis. Pray that they would be in good health. Pray that they would be great leaders. Pray that the people that God has placed in their lives, their friends, their family, their coworkers that they could breathe life into them, that they could give them wisdom. And when we begin to pray these things, our hearts begin to turn, and we learn how to protect the ones that we love. Lastly, we need to protect our marriage by honoring our spouses. And this might mean that we need to keep our family and our friends out of it. Have you ever been the spouse that after a long marital fight, you call mom and you tell her all about it? It sounds a little something like this. Mom, he bought a motorcycle, brought it home, and didn't even ask me. And now, I think he loves it more than me. And before you know it, your mom is intervening in your marriage and emailing your husband death statistics on motorcycles.
0: Never happened, you guys. This never happened.
1: No, it really didn't. But there are some things that happen on our marriage that should stay between the two of you. And God, and maybe a counselor, but it doesn't need to involve your mom and your best friend and your aunt and your uncle and your sister and your brother. No, leave that between the two of you to work out. Protect your marriage by honoring your spouse. When we protect our marriage with our words, we communicate together together. And that builds trust.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So the passage goes on. It says that love always protects. And then it goes on and it gives you two words. It says love always trusts and protects hopes. Now we're going to combine those two because essentially they're, they're reinforcing the same idea. These are two uh, words that kind of give you the same perspective on your marriage and what you should be doing. So we're going to combine them and we're going to summarize them with a phrase. And, and this phrase, honestly, it has stuck with me since the first time I heard it. I didn't make this up. I don't even remember who did, but it is so instrumental in the way that I approach my marriage. It really did change everything for me. You may hear it and you're like, mm, I don't get it. It doesn't seem like that big of a deal. Or it could open up up everything. It could be the key that unlocks it all, okay? Are you ready for it? I've built it up enough here. Love, always trusts, it, always hopes. We could put it this way. We could summarize it by saying love believes the best rather than assuming the worst about the other person. Love believes the best rather than assuming the worst about the other person. You see what ends up happening in most marriages is that we fill in the unknowns about our spouse's behavior or their intentions or their words. We fill it in with the worst possible explanation, don't we? I'm not the only one that does this, okay? I'm not the one that I'm not the only one that just assumes the worst out of everything that happens. I think it's really quite common. We see a gap in our understanding about what they meant or why they're doing or saying the things that we are, and our brain jumps to dark places where we automatically assume the worst case scenario. So maybe your husband comes home late a couple times in a week, and you've got an option. You can either assume the worst or you can believe the best. You can say, oh my goodness, he's sleeping with a secretary. I know it. I know it. I know it. My mama warned me. I know it. Or you can say to yourself, he's working hard to provide for our family. Now, those are two very different responses. And I believe which one of those you choose is going to dictate how your conversations go later that evening when your husband shows up late again. If you're assuming the worst without any knowledge or understanding, if you're automatically assigning them the the worst possible behavior or intentions, guess what? They're going to start to behave in the way that you're speaking or assuming to them. It really is true. If your wife, you know, she says something off the cuff and it hurts your feelings, you can, you can take it a couple of different ways. You know, you can just say, wow, she is as stressed as I am and she probably has no idea how hurtful her words just were. Or you can say, you know what, she's never respected me and I don't even know why I married her. I wish that I could find somebody else or I'd chosen that one instead. I mean, you can go a lot of different places when you start to assume the worst about what your spouse says and does rather than giving them the benefit of the doubt rather than believing the best. So anytime in your marriage, there is a gap, you don't know why they said it or what they're doing, rather than jumping to assuming the worst, learn to fill it with the best possible explanation. If that sounds naive to you, Like maybe you've been in relationships where uh, your your spouse or your boyfriend or girlfriend was not trustworthy, and this comes difficult to you. I understand that. I know that there are some people who are not trustworthy, genuinely. And if your your spouse, your husband or wife hasn't proven themselves trustworthy, then perhaps you know you need to go about this a different way. But if you've generally got a person that's been mostly trustworthy throughout your marriage, then you need to start believing the best rather than assuming the worst. Don't look at this as naive or unrealistic, because here's the truth. Now. I'm just going to speak for men here. I'm going to speak to you ladies. I'm not going to talk to you men about women because I'm not one of them. But for you ladies, you need to understand that we are basically just like dogs and children, you guys. We really are. We respond better to positive reinforcement than negative correction. We respond better to positive reinforcement than negative correction. If you're a teacher, what do you learn when you're preparing to teach? You learn not to dwell on negative behaviors for kids, but to redirect them. And every single time you see them doing the right thing, you celebrate them, you praise them for doing it. Same thing when you got a puppy, it goes outside to use the restroom and you say, good job, good boy, and you give him a treat. Now, uh, not to you know put men down too much, but we're fairly simple, you guys. It doesn't take a lot here. If you see us doing the right thing, and you celebrate that in whatever way your husband appreciates, if you celebrate that, then I promise you, you will find him rising to meet your expectations. If you treat each other the way that you want each other to be, as if you were already there, even though you're not, if you will treat each other that way, you will find the other person becoming the one that you're hoping they can be. It's like we speak life to one another, we speak in in really honestly prophetic ways into each other's lives, where we see something in our spouse and we start to treat them as if they were already that thing, and we watch as they become who we hope they can be. Uh, it assumes love; it assumes the worst too often. But my goodness, if you can learn to believe the best, then you will always trust. You will always hope in your marriage.
1: Good. And the last always is love always perseveres. Perseverance isn't a word that's attractive or flashy, but perseverance really is something that can make love last a lifetime. Love always perseveres. It sticks with it when you want to quit. It holds on when it would be just so easy to let go. So how do we persevere? I believe, number one, it's by making God the glue. I believe we should put God in the center of our marriage. When Daniel and I first met, it was actually seeing God in him that attracted me to him first. We met in Bible college, and it was hearing him preach in chapel for the first time and seeing how God was using him in a spectacular way, that I was attracted to him. And I remember sitting there listening to him preach, and my friend Stephanie leaned over to me, and she was like, hey, I think you should date him. And I remember thinking, I should marry him. And let me tell you women, I pursued him.
0: And I'm up there preaching the word, and she's like, holla. <laughs> so true.
1: So true. And by the way, this guy won like three scholarships in college for his preaching skills, y'all. Totally did. But man, even today, when I see God using him as he counsels people, as the Holy Spirit breathes through him the word as he preaches on this floor, I grow deeper and deeper in love with him. See God in your spouse. And if your spouse isn't a believer, pray Jesus into that marriage. See God in your spouse. And I think when we see God in our spouse, then we won't have to um, lean away from each other in the struggles. When the hard times come, when we make mistakes, when we're arguing all the time, if we have God in the center of our marriage, instead of leaning away from each other, we're going to lean in towards him. Am I right? Yeah. And when we have those dark days and we have trouble remembering what it is that brought us together in the first place, if we make God our constant, if we lean on him for our struggles instead of leaning on the addictions or the porn or the emotional attachments from our past, we will have a strong marriage that perseveres. And I believe that number two, we'll have a love that always perseveres if we remember that love is a verb and not a noun. Our love with our spouse isn't something that we just own or that we can expect to keep for a long time. No, our love is something that we have to act on every single day. And we have to choose to act out of love even when you don't feel in love. And if your spouse lies to you, or says hurtful things to you, saying the words, I love you, don't fix it. Am I right? Yeah. Yeah. It's acting through love when it's hard and when it's easy. In our first year of marriage, there were some really dark days in our ministry. And when people tell you your first year of marriage is always the hardest one, that was an understatement for us. We had just moved five hours south from our friends and our family and everyone that we knew, and it was the first time that I'd ever moved away from home. And we took a job working in a ministry where we did not fit in. And on top of all the normal struggles that you deal with in your first year of marriage, like learning to live together, learning each other, we found ourselves really miserable because we were working in a place where we didn't feel accepted or belonged or appreciated. And there was one really dark night where we were arguing till 3 a.m. And Daniel looks at me and he says, I don't think I'm supposed to be in the ministry anymore. Maybe I'm supposed to be a police officer or something, but I don't know. I can't do this. And it was in that moment that I realized that I had to be the stronger one. I had to step up and I had to, to hold it together. And I had to act through love when the other one is struggling And I had to say things like, I'm proud of you. I believe in you, and you can do this. And I had to remind him that we were called and we were gifted to share the overflowing love of Jesus with a lot of people. And we weren't giving up. And it was in that moment that I realized that I didn't want to be a wife that just sat back and let things happen. No, I wanted to be the wife that when my husband was down and out and he was struggling, that I'm in the trenches with him and I'm rolling up my sleeves and I'm pulling him out and reminding him who God has created him to be because I want a love that perseveres, not just endures. Are you with me? Yeah. That's good. Our love can persevere. When we remember that love is a verb, it's an action, it's not a noun. We can have a love that always perseveres and a love that never fails.
0: So the passage ends, and and genuinely, I want you guys to know how much I value what she just said, because I was going to walk away. I was going to be done. And um, she was the one that kind of said, hey, buck up, buddy. I love you. I'm with you. You're doing a great job, and we'll see through this. And we did, and I had to rely on her during that time. So she's not just saying that, it's true. Uh, the, The final part of this passage says that love never fails. And again, I read that sometimes and I think seriously, I've seen love that's failed over and over and over again. Everybody who gets married is in love, and half of them end up divorced. Their love fails. Obviously, this this sentence, this phrase, "love never fails," it's more ideal than it is real. It's talking about it in the best possible way and situation, true. But again, I want to challenge you to not give up on the belief that your marriage can last. That it is entirely possible for you to stay married to one person for life and to enjoy doing it. It's not for, you know, people who get lucky and find the exact right person. We dealt with that myth last week. It's not for those people who just happen to to get into a great relationship and they happen to be the outliers in our society. No, the truth is anyone who wants to can have a happy marriage in which love never fails. Okay. It is possible. And to wrap up, I'm going to read you one more verse. And this verse is, in my opinion, the most powerful relational principle in the Bible. If I had 10 minutes with you, if you were like, Dan, we are on our way to the lawyer's office right now. And if you don't say something that's going to help, then it's over. This is where I would take you. Okay, Ephesians chapter number five, verse 21, we'll put the verse here on the screen for you. If I could get you to learn to do one thing in your marriage, it would be this. Ephesians chapter 5 verse 21, the scripture says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. The S word Submission? Are you kidding? That's old-fashioned. How dare you? You're such a misogynist, Daniel, a sexist. Submit? Are you serious? That's what people did 60 years ago. People don't submit. We're beyond submission now. We understand that submission is not a good thing in a relationship. Can I just point out that this passage does not say that all women have to submit to men. It does not say that only women or wives have to submit to men. That's verse 22, which is the verse that most people read where the scripture says, like the verse right after, it says, wives, submit yourselves to your husbands out uh, uh, as to the Lord. Most people only quote that verse and they say, women, you got to submit. Well, it doesn't say women submit. It says wives submit. And it doesn't say only wives submit. The doggone verse just before says everybody should submit to everybody else out of reverence for Christ. That means that there is a sense, a very real sense in which husbands should submit to their wives. There is a real sense in which parents submit to children. There is a real sense in which pastors submit to congregations and government submits to its citizens. And if that sounds weird to you, it's because you don't understand biblical submission. Biblical submission is not forced obedience. Forced obedience is an oxymoron, you guys. And if you try to force your spouse to submit, you're a plain moron. It doesn't work. You cannot force your spouse to submit. And as I mentioned, it's not only for women and submission is not weakness. It is a strength in your marriage if you can learn to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Let me tell you what submission is from a biblical perspective. It's not woman you obey. And it's not, husband, you're going to listen because uh, I'm in charge here. No, submission is voluntarily putting yourself under somebody else. That is, it's putting somebody else's needs, somebody else's well-being ahead of your own. That is submission. Submission. And that's what the Bible means when it says everybody should submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. If you're operating with a contract mindset in your marriage, you're going to look across the table and you're going to say, you owe me. But if you operate with a covenant mindset, if you are in full submission to one another, you won't say you owe me. You'll say you before me. I am going to invest my life into loving and serving you. When I said I do, what I was saying I do to is not, Amber, you are going to spend your life making me happy. That is a recipe for a divorce. I said, I'm gonna spend my life trying to make sure that you are happy, healthy, and successful. And she made the same promise to me. That is, we agreed to submit to one another till death do us part. The key to a lifelong and happy marriage is not hard. It's honestly quite simple, but it isn't easy. It is difficult to love someone so fully and to put their needs constantly ahead of your own. But if, 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 if you will do that to your wife, if you will do that to your husband, if you'll speak words of life and encouragement over them, if you'll learn to believe the best instead of assuming the worst in them, if you'll make God the center and the glue of what holds you together each day, if you will submit to one another, you will find that love never fails. It really can go the distance. Now, the reason why is important. Go back, let's put the the verse right before that on the screen. Verse uh, 21, Ephesians 5. It says, everyone submit to one another. Why? Out of reverence for Christ. You guys, the reason that I submit to her is because I'm following the example of the one who submitted for me. You say, come on, husbands shouldn't submit to wives and, you know, parents shouldn't submit to children. The authority figure is the one who gets submitted to, right? No, not true biblically. You find in, in Philippians chapter number two, the scripture tells us that Jesus, who was very God, he was God himself. He actually emptied himself of his power and his authority, of his rights and everything he deserved so that you and I could be accepted. He emptied himself so that I could be filled. He gave his life so that I could have life. He offered love so that I would know what true love is. Jesus Christ submitted himself for me and for you. Tell me why you can't submit to your spouse. Not because they deserve it. They don't. Obviously, I agree with you. Your spouse doesn't deserve it. Neither do you. And if submission is based on what we deserve, we're operating with a contract mindset, we're missing out on the covenant promise, and we are not following in the footsteps of our God and Savior who loved us so much, that he would empty himself of everything he deserved so that we could have everything that we didn't deserve submit to one another, I beg you, out of reverence, out of love, out of the example of Jesus Christ, and you will have a marriage that never fails.